All right, if you have a Bible, open up to the book of Romans. And if you have your mobile device, just open up really quick to the Spreaker app and open up to the VBC podcast and look at this, uh, the artwork for this uh, episode or this sermon. Just look at the artwork. If you see it. No. Do you see it? It looks like someone having some problems, right? It looks like Sarah Dazzler's our teacher. Okay. All right. All right. You see the frustration? Okay. The reason I chose that uh, photograph is because we're getting ready to get to a section that we may all end up looking just like that by the time it's over. For those who are listening online, well, you already see the artwork, so you know what I'm referring to. All right. It looks like someone very frustrated, right? They can't get it. They don't understand it. And you've probably have all been in school at some point in your life where you feel, well, you probably are like, I've I've probably experienced that more here at this church than I ever did uh, at school. So, but my job is sometimes to uh, help you see the difficulty, not ignore the difficulty. Well, we come to a section in the book of Romans, and I'll just read how one commentary puts it. And I love when you buy commentaries, and this is what it says. Are you ready? I posted the the screenshot of this uh, commentary. Many people consider Romans chapter 5, 12 through 21. Many people consider Romans chapter 5, verse 12 to 21, of which this present text is the introduction, to be the, are you ready? Most difficult passage in the epistle. All right? I want to make sure you understand that some believe that what we're about to read is the most difficult passage of the entire book. I don't necessarily believe that. I believe that probably the most difficult passage of the book, does anybody know what, I, what was probably, I believe, the most difficult passage of the book, at least up to this point? Romans 2. Everybody remember the, the verses? Romans chapter 2, starting at verse 6, verse 7, verse 8, and verse 9, and verse 10. Everybody see that? Six through ten. I believe that. Why was that one so difficult? Yeah, reconciling this idea that we're saved by grace, but according to that, we're going to be just according to our works. And how do we understand that? How do we, how do we take that apart? How do we, how do we understand it? Now, why do you think most pastors uh, don't believe that section was difficult? Does everybody remember how most pastors handled that passage? They gloss right over it by saying this. In fact, I, I told you how uh, Southside handled it. Hey, that's just hypothetical. We're not really going to be judged according to our works. It's just he's making a hypothetical argument that if you were judged according to your works, it would be difficult. But there's nothing in the passage that using hypothetical. There's nothing like how do you draw that conclusion, right? They just kind of and like and then, and like they're like it's no big problem. If you don't believe Romans 2, 6 through 9 there is not a problem. If, if you don't believe it's a problem, then uh, let me, I'm, I'm going to be very mean. You don't know how to read. Okay, That's a problem. That's a problem. What should we not do? Ignore the problem or pretend the problem is not there or try to come up with the easiest answer to get around the problem. That's not how you do Bible study. I'll, I'll show you how uh, some handle it. In the, for this quarter, the Bible study guide is, well, is, a, is in Romans, right? It's, it's about over. This quarter is about over. I think uh, well, the new one uh, is in Proverbs. So, um, but if you'll note, if you go through this, looking for Romans chapter 5, 12 through 21, guess what you're not going to find? 
It's not here. They don't even touch it. They skip right over it as if it doesn't even exist. I wonder why. Yeah, Romans 5, 12 through 21. Yeah, which most believe is the most difficult passage. So, so the most difficult passage in the whole book gets how much attention and a Bible study guide on the book? None. But here's the thing. You know how many millions of churches use this Bible study guide? And everyone will act like, we studied Romans. We studied Romans in our church. No, you didn't study Romans. You didn't study... Oh. And again, I, I, can, I can go through... I don't know how many churches... I, I, when I got ready to study, study Romans, I just went from church to church to church looking at their, their, their teaching on Romans. And I'm like, you covered Romans in six weeks? Then why did you act like you studied Romans? You didn't study Romans. You can't study it in six weeks. You can't study it in six years. I don't know if you can... I don't know if, how long it takes. Now, what you can say is we're going to do a brief overview, which is perfectly okay. Just don't try to convince the people that you're doing something wonderful and then skip a passage like this. Right? This commentary goes on to say, let me read it again. Many people consider Romans 5, 12 through 21, of which this present text is the introduction, to be the most difficult passage in the epistle. At first... At first reading, it seems complex and enigmatic. And in one sense, it is. It will be discussed later um, uh, as far as complete human comprehension is concerned. So they say, as far as human comprehension is concerned, this is going to seem complex and too hard to grasp. Um, the, uh, the, The truths of this passage are beyond reach. The truths of this passage is beyond reach. Saying you're not going to be able to get it. You're not going to be able to grab it. Now, I see all of you looking down, look at Romans 5, 12 through 21, and you're probably thinking, what's the problem? Okay, but if you miss the problem, then that's the problem. (laughs) Because if you don't see the problem, then the problem is beyond your ability to grasp the problem. See, so that, that makes it even a bigger problem. The problem you can't see is, is, is a, a big problem. Um, but on the other hand, the truths themselves are wonderfully simple and clear when, when accepted and humble faith is God's word. In other words, guess, guess what that's code for? Just, it's God's word. I just believe it. I don't understand it. I have no clue what it means, but I just believe it. That's the ugh, go-to Christian. That's the church answer. I don't get it, but Jesus. Okay, all right. All right oh, boy. I, that's, that drives me crazy. All right. Uh, just as it is possible to accept and live in accordance with the law of gravity without fully understanding it, so it is possible for believers to accept and live according to God's truth without fully understanding it. Now, I don't know if I agree with that statement. Let me read that again. Let me read that again. I want everyone to think about this. and we'll, We may have a little disagreement here, but that's okay. We'll see what happens. Just as, as it is, is, just as it is possible to accept and live in accordance with the law of gravity without fully understanding it, so it is possible for believers to accept and live according to God's truth without fully understanding it. Is that a logical fallacy? Is there a logical fallacy there? It's equating two things, right? What the two things are they equating? Gravity? Uh, Understanding gravity and God's law. So I I may not understand how gravity works, but I can live in accordance with it. Well, even if I didn't know gravity exists, it doesn't change anything. I understand that I have a limitation, right? If I fall off something high, I'm I'm going down. 
Right? I may not understand it, okay? But does that apply to God's word? So you're trying to equate two different things, right? Sometimes you, you're equating two different things and it doesn't necessarily work. Do you think, do you think the same principle applies? And, and you can be wrong. It's okay. You feel free to speak up. <laughs> okay? You can not understand, Okay, now that's a good point. Some people are like, I don't understand it and I don't care. Too complicated. I don't. Get, a lot of people will do that with the subject of election and predestination. Right. Right. Now, let me. I can't. Right. So I think I think there's one problem that some people will just kind of use. Like I don't understand it, and I'm good. And that's that's not. I don't think that's good. What's the What's the difference between living? a life not understanding gravity but living in accordance with it versus not understanding God's word and trying to live in accordance with it. Okay, I want to make sure this is very important. Here's the difference. You may not understand gravity, but you're probably not spending a lot of time trying to tell everyone how it works and you're probably not spending a lot of time trying interpreting it and doing, right? You, you just know it exists. The problem with God's word is rarely do Christians say, I don't understand it, but I just believe it and leave it there. They say, I, they rarely do they even acknowledge they don't understand it. First, they, all Christians act like they understand everything. Number two, they walk around and then offer an interpretation of it, even though they may argue they don't understand. Like, you can have someone go, I don't really understand that whole election, predestination stuff. I just don't get that. But then they'll turn right around and say something that indicates they hold a belief about it. Like, though, I don't really understand that election stuff. And then the next words out of their mouth, you're like, you're a semi-Pelagian. Now, you see the danger of not be, uh, understanding God's word? Not understanding God's word can lead to what? Wrong interpretation, false doctrine, apostasy, and then sharing your wrong understanding, your wrong interpretation and apostasy with other people. There's a big difference. If I don't understand gravity, there's no spiritual... I'm not, I, rarely do people who don't understand gravity, right? I mean, we can have Joel doesn't understand gravity at all. Doesn't even understand it exists. I, I don't think he's saying, hey, Eli, come over. I'm going to have you jump off stuff really high until we see when you die. I mean, he may... Okay, or, or when you fly, right? I, rarely, I, rarely do you have people who don't understand gravity running around trying to get everyone to violate the law of gravity. Now, there may be an example somewhere, but rarely does it happen, correct? But within Christianity, what is there a nonstop, constant in motion going on? Hey, believe this, believe it. Seth was just telling me conversations he's having, you know, with Church of Christ people saying bizarre, crazy things. Whether they understand the concept, what, what's not stopping them? Is, is it stopping them going, well, you know what, I don't really understand doctrine or theology, and I've never really studied hermeneutics. No, 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 no. They're just going to go. So I, I, I'm, not, I'm not a fan of the way that, because that commentary is pretty much setting up for this. Hey, you're not going to understand this, but it's okay. Well, part of me would be like, well, if it's okay, then why do I need the commentary? Why did I buy the commentary? Obviously, anyone who buys the commentary wants what? Understanding. So, we're going to try our best to understand this section. Now, I, I believe, personally, that 
chapters coming up are more difficult than this one. I do. But we're going to try our best. So, so guess what? Because it's difficult, I'm going to approach this in a completely different way. All right? We're not, going, we're not, we're not even going to get into the text. We're going to do kind of, uh, some, you know, kind of some preliminary work right? to, try to, to try to help you see what's in it. What's the key? Let's see if y'all can get this. Y'all should know because I've said it a million times. What is the key? to understanding a biblical passage? What is the absolute key principle that everyone in this church should know? Okay, what comes first? Observation. The quality of your observation determines? So we're going to do observation skills today. All right, so first, we're going to just read the passage. All right, everybody ready? All right, let's go to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. We'll see there. Romans chapter 5. Everybody there? All right. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Wherefore, now stop right there. What was the major focus in verses 1 through 11 of Romans chapter 5? What was the major focus? The benefits of justification. They try to really help us understand. Paul wants us to understand, hey, He's, he's tried to tell us the, ne- the need for justification, right? He's tried to explain justification. He's tried to illustrate justification. And guess what else he's tried to do? Help us understand the benefits that come from it. So far, it's pretty, pretty straightforward, right? Not, not a lot of difficulty, okay? Now, but so based off this, so now that you understand all of this, wherefore, and I don't know what we even call this section, because in some ways it seems like the argument It's kind of been following a logical progression of thought. Would everyone agree? You you tell me if this follows the logical progression of thought. We've we've already had it explained, right? We've already had the the, the why we need it. We've already had it illustrated. We now have the benefits. Now, what is is going on here? You tell me what you, you think. All right, here we go. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who was the figure of him that was to come. But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one May, uh, many be dead, much more the grace of God and the, gift of, of, uh, and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. And not as it was by one man, one that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification." For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in the life by one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners... So by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. 
Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. All right, now. So I'm going to ask some questions, just trying to get you thinking here. Again, we're going to do a lot of preliminary work today, all right? So please don't think this is going to be anything what we typically do, all right? Well, no, this is probably typically what we do because we always do things differently, all right? So here's the first question to you. Does anyone see a logical progression of thought from what just came before? How does that, how does that a logical progression of thought from what just came before? Because what's come before? He's explained us why we need justification. He's explained justification, right? How it comes about. He's illustrated justification. And he's told us the benefits of justification. Now, what, what, what's, what's he doing here? Okay. Okay, is this kind of an interlude, kind of a, just kind of like a, a, re, a kind of a, a, maybe we could call it kind of summarizing everything that's gone before? How many see it as a possible summary? It's summarizing, it's using some different words, but it's kind of summarizing all of the concepts that we've found before. Does, does, does someone like, does anyone like the idea of it being a summary? Okay? Anybody not like the summary idea? Now, don't just go with the, the, the thing that you think makes, it, makes you feel better. All right, let's write down, possibly, just write down possibly, Romans 5, 12 through 21 is a, is a summary of uh, things that have come before, preparing us for chapter 6, which is, seems to be a clear transition to something else. That's a possible Maybe, okay. I'm not getting any major disagreement. We'll see. I can check my email box right now and find out how many people are disagreeing with us online, but that's okay. All right. Anything else you notice by going through that chapter, uh, going through that section? Do you see anything there that kind of lends this, uh, that gives you a hint to why many find this to be one of the most difficult sections of the entire book? Okay. Okay. Well, d- does everyone feel it very wordy? Okay, it's very wordy, is it not? Okay, so th- when it's very wordy, that can be very difficult, right? Because you're trying to figure out what each word means, but there's so many words. So sometimes, what do, what, what's something that's very difficult to do sometimes in a passage that's very wordy? is to step back from all the words... And say, okay, instead of trying to break down every single word, I may have to break down what is it general, what is it trying to say in general. Does that make sense? I think sometimes that can be difficult, right? But it is very wordy. Anything else there that you see that can, can, can make it difficult or something that jumped out at you? How, how many have ever perceived this to be difficult? I'm assuming everyone here has read it at least a hundred times. I mean, I would think. I mean... 
Okay. There's one thing that should just jump out immediately going, that makes absolutely no sense. There's probably... Well, okay. Yeah, sin is not imputed with everyone. That's that that raises some well that raises some big questions about how we interpret Genesis. It's a massive hermeneutical issue that comes up there. All right, so so, so everybody at least sees that there's some things in it. You may not have perceived the section as a, a whole as difficult, but there's some things here that should raise some questions. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to work through this doing some observation and hopefully hopefully when I'm done you're going to be like okay I'm glad you did that because I, I hope or you may say that was a waste of time I don't know why I even came to church I don't know which one I'm going to get but hopefully I don't get the second one all right here we go are you ready to understand these verses we need to at least have some we're going to we're going to kind of build a safety net Right? We're going to kind of, remember what I always try to do whenever we get ready to get to a difficult passage what do I always try to do well, I always try to say, what is clear? What can we see? Because then when everything falls apart, what can we hold on to? What is clear, right? Because the thing is, is I, what some pastors do is like, here's what's clear, and then ignore the difficulty. Well, that's, that's garbage. What, I, what you should do is identify what is clear, then run right head on into the difficulty, and then when the difficulty knocks you off the, the, you know, the ledge, and you start falling back, you're like, boom, okay, there's the safety net. Okay, because you can go back to what's clear. The, the, you point out what is clear so that you can get to what is difficult. Does that make sense? All right, that's, I think that's a very important principle. So let's go through this. Are you ready? All right, now you're going to be doing all the work today. All right? You're, I'm, just, I'm just here to guide you. All right, so are you ready? Here we go. If you, if you have a paper, by, uh, uh, you know, the old-fashioned Bible, you may want... want to use that, I think it will be more beneficial maybe, but you can use whatever. Here we go. You ready? Number one. Go through Romans 5, 12 through 21. Note the repetition of the word one. Okay, if you have a paper and pen, write down each verse and the use of the word one. Like, you know, it's found here, it's found here, it's found here. Okay. Go through there. I'll let you find out all the verses where it's, it's found. This is, why I know, this is why people don't like our church. They're like, this sounds, feels like school. Okay. Yeah, well, it is a place of learning, right? I got people counting on their fingers. Okay, that's whatever you got to do. Use a partner, call a friend. You can talk amongst yourselves. It's perfectly okay. We don't do church like other people. And the reason, uh, this is one of the great things about being, uh, well, even if I had a, a church of 500, I'd be doing this. I'd try to make it do it the same way. Okay. How many times is the word one used? Twelve. Wow, that's a lot, isn't it? Yes, that's a lot. Is everybody got? Is everybody about uh, pretty much in agreement on twelve? Let's go through them. Everybody ready? We'll just go through them together. All right. I wanted you to. I like getting you to do it first instead of me just trying to take you through it. All right. Let's start in verse twelve. Everybody there? Wherefore, as by 
one man sin entered into the world and death by sin. So death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. For unto the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where, when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who was the figure of him that was to come. But not as the offense, so also is the free gift, for it through the offense of one, many may many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by Grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift of many offenses unto justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. Even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. So that, that as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Everybody see that? All right, now, when it's re- repeated that many times, what should you do? Pay attention. Now, just... Just from a surface level. Now, we've read the passage twice, right? Read the passage twice. Okay? Now, what do you think is the significance of the little word one? Okay. Well, obviously, the one... Well, think about it this way. The focus of the word one, being repeated one, is it's referring to one person, right? Each time, the emphasis of one is emphasizing a person. Yes? Would we agree? Okay. So, so that means the, we've got to, every time we see the word one, which person is identified with the one? Who is the one the one is referring? Write that down. Who is the one the one is referring to? Who is the one the one is referring to? That's pretty good, right? Yes? Feel like I'm in a class dealing with how to interpret Shakespeare, okay? Alright. There's nothing more fun than being in a class when people have to read a, se- a segment of Shakespeare and then ask everyone in class to, fi- to tell you what it means. And then the t- teacher has to go back and go, no, look, let's take it apart piece by piece. Well, we're doing the same thing, right? but this is far more important than Shakespeare. So what? So we do we? Can everyone agree that the word "one" is repeated what at least twelve times? Yes. And that what what should we get from that? Is whenever we see the one, we have to figure out who the one is referring to, right? Who is the one? When the use of the word "one," what is it referring to? Who, to whom is it referring to? Is that a good way of putting it? All right. Everybody got that? All right. Number two. All right. 
uh, and I'm not going to necessarily make you do this, as we go through, as, you, as we've read Romans 5, 12 through 21, notice or note the contrast of the two. We have the use of the word one, but the use of the word one is there for you to note the contrast of the two. Does everybody understand that? The one, each time one is, is used, it's referencing someone, correct? And the reason the one is there is to draw the, the, to your attention the contrast of the two. Now, everybody with me? The use of the word one is referring to one person, but it's referring ultimately to two different people, right? And so what do you have to do? You have to go for the one, determine who the one is, and then note the contrast between the two. We can put it this way. In short, this section is a contrast of whom? Adam and Christ. Adam was given dominion over the old creation. He sinned and he lost his kingdom. Because of Adam's sin, all mankind is under condemnation and death and death. Christ came as king over a new creation. By his obedience on the cross, he brought righteousness and justification. Christ not only undid all the damage that Adam's sin affected, but he accomplished much more by making us the very sons of God. All right? But so please note, you've got to identify the one, and then you have to identify the contrast. Identify the one and identify the contrast. If we, if we do that, we're going to be on to something, right? Now, is that going to answer all of our questions? Just go ahead and say no. no. It's not. But what does it do when it, when, when it all begins to fall apart? Okay. Who is the one? What is the contrast? We may not agree on everything, but we have to be able to go back. We're building what we can agree on. Remember, what it, what, it's a safety net. Safety net. Because we're going to come to a point. Remember, I tried to do the same thing with Romans 2.6. I tried to give us some safety nets. Like, well, it can't be saying this, or it can't be saying that. So now we're kind of left in this. Now, we, we were left in a world where we stood in it. I don't know if we still came up with a good answer, but we know what the things it couldn't be because it just made absolutely no sense and fell apart. All right, so make sure you have that, all right? Where'd I put my iPad? There it is, okay. Because that's where my notes are. All right, here, here we go. Number three. Note the, the key idea of identification. Note the idea of identification. What do I mean by identification? What is that? What's the idea of identification? No. The idea of uh, you, the reader, your identity, your identification with the one. You're identified with one, Adam, or identified with one, Christ. You're either identified with both, or you're only identified with one. You've got to understand the note of identification. The goal of the, re- the, goal of the passage is for you, the reader, to see where do you, who do you identify with? Right? That um, if you read, I, I could go through any form of storytelling. The, 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 uh, the writer, the director in a movie, the characters are there and, and, and they're given there for you as the reader to somehow identify with. You either identify with the struggle 
You identify with the moral dilemma. You identify with the failure. You identify with the success. You identify with the, the, the broken heart, whatever. Identifying. Well, here, the re- Paul, the author, wants you to identify with one of the ones. And once you identify with the one, then what can you do? Identify with the contrast. Everybody got that? So note the one. Note the two. Right? And then what else? Note the identification. Right? Does that make sense? Okay, good. All right. Next. Note the repetition of the word reign. R-E-I-G-N. Note the repetition of the word reign. R-E-I-G-N. All right, go through it and find it. I didn't say it always does. Okay. If I did, I apologize. But that one trespass and one sin usually refers back to the one... Exactly, right. So it's still probably connected to the one person. But, okay. but when we go through it, we, we'll, we'll note that. But you still have to identify who the one is speaking. And I'm glad Stephen brings this up. If you're reading about the one, and the one does seem to be referring to something else, how does that thing refer back to the one person? So, all right, but the rain. See how many times y'all find the word rain. I think there's some disagreements here. Maybe come down to a translation issue. It could be. We have four. Some say five. Okay, <clears throat> I was waiting for that. Some's going to say four. Some's going to say five. That's okay. So at least five, right? Or at least four, right? Agreed? At least four. Is everybody okay with that? How many? How many found five? Couple. How many found four? All right, we have some differences. Probably. I, I, that's what I'm going to assume. But that's okay. As long as everybody got at least the four. Right? At least the four. Um, I, think it was, I think it was in uh, AD 69, after Nero died, that chaos ensued. Or I think Nero may have killed himself. Okay, I'm going from his history and memory here, so I could be wrong. But during that time, sometimes that period is known as the, uh, the reign of the four, four something, because basically there was this big power struggle, and there was a period where there was all this transition. Well, here, uh, what we're going to focus on is the reign of four things that we need to see here. Right? You need to note the use of the word reign and the reigning of four things here that I want you to pay close attention to. And these are the way I put them down <clears throat> in my notes. All right, everybody ready? Okay, look at verse 14. Does everybody see rain in 14? Rained, okay. All right, everybody see it? See it even in the NIV? Okay, Ooh, wow, that we're, 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 something's weird going on. No, okay, no. All right, what's raining there? Death. Okay, death. We see the rain of death. Would everybody agree that that's there? Okay, now verse, I believe, 17 Okay, we have death again, right? What else reigns? 
right? Uh, who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. So the gift of righteousness. So we have the reign, the reign of death and we have the reign of the gift of righteousness or the reign of righteousness, if you want to just put it that way. Everybody see that? Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, the King James does too. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, what's the first reign that we see here in Romans uh, 5, 12 through 21? The reign of death. The reign of death. Okay, and it's mentioned twice. All right? The reign of death. Death is reigning. How does death reign? What do we understand about that? We all know that people die, right? We all know that death occurs, so there's some reign of death. The second reign. Reign of righteousness. Okay, how does that work? Okay, how does that work? Everybody see that one? Look at verse 21. That as sin hath reigned, right? The reign of sin. The reign of sin. Everybody got that one? Yes? Amen, all right. The next one, what's the next one? And grace. Everybody see that? So you have the reign of four things. What are the, what are the four things that are reigning? Death, Death righteousness, righteousness sin. Grace. Do those contrast? Possibly. Yes. Possibly. All right, so we see the reign of those four things, okay? Now, as we look at those reigning, uh, as, so as we look at the reigning of those four things, what do we need to do based off what we've seen so far? How, listen, how does the reigning of, of one of the four things, how does that reign relate back to the one? How does it serve in the contrast of the two? And how does it influence your and how does it relate to your identification of the one and the contrast of the two? Does everybody hear that and see that? You have the four, right? Everybody got the four? Now, as you read about the four, what do you have to do? How does the, how does the four relate to the one? So you've got to connect one, what's reigning to the one. And then how that's reigning relates to the contrast of the two. And then you show up and go, how does this... Who, how, how you identify to the two or how you identify to the one will focus on how you identify to the reign of one of the four. Does that kind of make sense? Yes? Is there any confusion there? We've got four things reigning, correct? Each thing that reigns relates to the one. Yes? You connect that reign with the one. Now, once you figure out the one, then that one is going to be related to the contrast of the two. The reign of death is obviously very different than the reign of righteousness. Then you come along, and then you figure out how the reign and the one, contrasted with the two, fits with your identification. Because guess what you're going to end up being identifying with? One of those reigns. Yes? All right. Does that make sense? Okay, good. I hope so. All right. I did, I did my... Uh, think, of it, think of it this way. Paul, in Romans 5, 12 through 21, 
seems to be identifying two individuals, Adam and Christ, and each of them reigning over a kingdom. Does that make sense? So that's how those four things come into play there. So far, so good? Any questions? All right. Now, look for this one. Are you ready? Now note and try to find the the phrase, much more. Much more. How many times is the phrase much more utilized? <laughs> yeah, people, people listen to this like, that, this is the weirdest sermon I've ever heard on Romans 5, 12 through 21 I've ever heard in my life, but that's okay. You've now worked through the passage I don't know how many times. How many times does the phrase much more show up? And we may have some translation issues here. Write down each time it's used. Much more. Do we need to work through all of the verses? Where's the first time much more shows up? 15, how's it used? Okay, much more the grace of God. Well, just just make sure we just know what it's referring to. Okay, much more the grace of God. Okay, what's the second time it's used? Seventeen. What? How's it used? Much more what? Abundance of grace. Much more abundance of grace. All right. Number th- uh, third time it's used. Verse twenty. How's it used? Grace much more abound. All right. Fourth time it's used. Is there a fourth? You only got three? Okay, nobody else got four? Some, some commentaries say it's used five times. So there could be, a, I knew there was going to be some difference. We have at least three. Okay, we'll see if anybody can find another one. Okay, King James uses three. All right. Twins are back there going through the NIV, so we'll see. Increased all the more. What increases all the more? Okay, grace. So we'll kind of go with that. Similar language, agreed. Okay. Okay. Maybe, okay, possibly. But much more. Every time much more is used so far, right, that it seems to be a reference to what? Grace, 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 grace. Everybody see that? For the most part, for the most part, yes? We may find, the twins may find one that may relate to something else. We'll see. I don't think they will. I'm going to be pretty confident, okay? Right? Now, what, what is significant about this? Listen carefully. The phrase much more as used through there is used to contrast everything that Adam brings in bad. Christ brings in much more something 
opposite to it. Right? Much more. So that emphasizes what? What is that emphasizing here? No, it's in, from a hermeneutical standpoint, it's emphasizing the, what? Contrasting nature, comparative nature of the section of Scripture. Everybody get that? It's, 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 it's yelling at you. So what if, if, you, if you go through the passage and you don't note the contrast and the, and the comparison, you're missing out, right? All right, so let's go through everything you're supposed to be looking for. First, you're supposed to note the use of the word... One, once you find the word one, you have to determine who the one is referring to, right? Everybody got that? Number two. Okay, note the contrast of the two. Right? Once you figure out the one, then you've got to figure out how the one is contrasted to the other one. So far, so good. Number three. Identification. Well, you have to come along and go, there's the one, and you identify with which one. And once you identify with the which one, then what do you identify with? The contrast. Everybody see that? Right. Okay, next, number four. The word rain. Four things rain. What are the four things that rain? Death, righteousness, sin, and grace. Then guess what you have to do? You have to take the, 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 the thing raining and identify it with the uh, one, and then see how that rain contrasts with the other one and the other rain. And then you have to figure out which one you identify with. You identify with the one, will put you involved in the, and the contrast, and will put you involved in the rain. Everybody got that? Okay. Yes? N- next? Okay. The use of the phrase, much more. He's telling you that all the bad that comes in the one rain, something much more comes in the other rain. So you have to figure out, how, do you identify with the much more? Right? Agreed? Okay. Right, did we, did uh, the twins find any more? So we, we, we think three is much, possibly that one that Stephen said. Okay, same one we have. Just use different words. Okay. All right, so I don't know why some commentaries say five. I don't know where they get the five, but all right. We're going to go with the three. That's why we don't trust commentaries, right? How trustworthy is a Christian commentary? Does many, does it kind of carry the same idea? So by the possibly, possibly. They possibly could have done that. Okay, all right. One last thing. We're running out of time. All right, you ready? We could probably go through this even more. Now, I want to make sure what you see, this, this is so critical. All we're doing is observational skills. That, like, this is what you should do with every passage. If you don't do the observation, you can't do the interpretation. Let me say it again. If you don't do the observation, you can't do the interpretation. If you have not spent the time going through and doing an observational exercise on a passage, let me beg you, let me plead with you. Don't argue about its interpretation. That's taken us almost an hour here. Okay? And this is just a small passage. Now, it's not all passages have this much to observe, but every passage has something to observe. There's one other thing that should just jump out at you. Right? Everybody ready? Look at verse 12 through 14. 
Romans 5, 12 through 14. What do you see there? Don't try to interpret it. What do you see there that should just go, wait a minute. I need to write this down. See if you can identify it. Romans 5, 12 through 14. Well, there's something there, but let's see. You can identify what it is. That's identifying the problem. Okay? Something ha- something's going on in verses 12 through 14. Okay? Think you're almost there? You have no law in 12 through 14 mentioned. No law, right? But even though there's no law, what is also happening? Death. You have death without law. But what what does the law give? Sin. How can you have death if there's no sin? Without the law, what is not imputed? What does the passage say? Where there is no law, sin is not imputed. Nevertheless, what kept happening? Death reigned. reigned. How could death reign if there's no sin? This This is an important principle here. I have it this way in my notes. We, well, I can. I'll put these in questions. Can we all agree that all men die? But death is the result of disobeying the law. There was no law from Adam to Moses, but men still died. A general result demands a general cause. What is the cause? Now, there's a simple theological answer. Okay. Right? There's definitely, there was a law in the garden. Definitely the people who broke that law died. But did any of us break that law? Did any of the people who existed after Adam break that law? Ah, there we go. Okay, so, so and, and, and in fact, that's where I want you to get, is this, this presents a problem that at first, it, 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 it's written in a way that makes you go, well, wait a minute, that's not fair, right? Wait a minute, how can people die if there's no law, and if there's no law, there's no sin, then how is anyone dying? The, the, I want, what I want you to see is this is written in a way to make you do just that. See, sometimes the Bible is written to make you react in the very way the church tells you don't react. Because you're taught in church never to go, wait a minute, that makes no sense. You're taught to go, I don't understand it, but it's God's word. I'll just accept it. No, you're supposed to go. Like if a teenager's reading this, like if, if, if this was a mom writing to her teenage daughters, the daughters would be like, mom's crazy, that makes no sense, that's not fair. But when we read the Bible, all of a sudden we become all sanctimonious and like, oh, it makes perfect sense. No, it doesn't. It's supposed to raise a question. I'll, I'll read everything I have in my notes. We, we know that all men die, but death is the result of disobeying the law. 
There was no law from Adam to Moses, but men still died. A general result demands a general cause. What is the cause? It can be only one thing. The disobedience of Adam. When Adam sinned, he ultimately died, all of his descendants died. Yet the law had not yet been given. Conclusion, they died because of Adam's sin. Not seeming very fair. And and the reason this is here is sometimes a doctrine of like doctrine of imputation is not sometimes clearly articulated. What's clearly articulated is he gives you a problem that makes you go, what, what, what's going on? In fact, it's even written that way to make you, like, I love the way it's, the way it's written is so messed up. Like, okay, wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for all, for that all have sinned. And you're like, okay, yeah, we all sin. For unto the law... Sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. And then what does he go on to say? Nevertheless, death reigned. Even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression. That that is to lead you to a conclusion that this doesn't make any sense and this is not fair. What is it trying to get you to the conclusion? There's got to be an explanation for this. And somehow the explanation is what? Everyone is identified with the one. And because you are identified with the one, then what reigns over you? Death. Even though you haven't sinned, because, or even for those... The same way he did, or for those other, for the individuals that came after him, what law were they breaking? They couldn't go eat the. They couldn't go eat the tree. Uh, they couldn't go eat the tree, could they? There was someone there with a sword, so they couldn't. They're like, I can't even commit the same sin you did. But I'm dying. I'd have been. Uh, I, I mean, I would have been. I would have been the one. Let's rise up and find Adam's family. Oh wait, I'm part of it. Okay, but but let's go get him. Hey, I'd be marching around Adam's house. No justice, no peace. Right? I'd have been mad. Because does that feel just? Like, hey, you're the family who killed us all. Literally. (laughs) That's the family who killed us all. That's kind of messed up. Well, how does that work? Well, the only way it works is I'm identified with the one. Now, if I'm identified with the one and death reigns over me, I want something much better than death. I have to figure out who the other one is. When I figure out who the other one is, then guess what I can do? I can identify with what he reigns over. And what does his reign bring? Grace. Righteousness. More. Does it, you see how that works? So I just want you to see that passage is... is purposely written in a way to cause you to ask those questions. Let me, I'll I'll stop with this. If you don't ask those kinds of questions when you read, you're not reading the Bible. That's not Bible reading, that's church reading. There's a difference between Bible reading and church reading. Church reading, you're like, oh, makes perfect sense to me. You're like, "Uh, it does? Doesn't make it like people read Job and like it makes perfect sense to me. No, it doesn't. The 
man didn't do anything wrong. He loses everything. Well, in the end, you know, God gives him everything back. He doesn't get his original family back. Everybody's like, everyone's so, so, it's like we're so evil when we come to, well, you know, he got his, he got a new family, so he should have just be grateful. That's not the way, but we, we're taught to read it in a church way. The church way doesn't, you're not supposed to do what? You're not supposed to ever say it doesn't make any, like I say things all the time about passages of scripture and I can, I know early on, especially when y'all were new to, to me, y'all would look, I could almost see horror on your face. Like he said, what? You know, I'm like, no, because I, I read, right? Have you ever read a book going, that makes no sense? And I do the same thing. That makes no sense. Yes? Okay, so does, so any questions about those things? We're going to have to stop right there, but that's okay. Does that give us a framework? Now, with that framework, do you think the passage is going to be more difficult or easier? It should be easy for this, because once we come to the things we can't understand, what do we still have? Well, you're, already, you're already now... Look, without even studying the passage, you already now can give a basic understanding of it. The passage is going to give you one individual, and that one individual is going to be contrasted with another individual. Okay, what I have to figure out who I identify. Once I figure out who I identify, I realize that the one is contrasted with the other, so the one leads to a two. I have to figure out which one to identify with, and guess what I figure out when I'm trying to identify? That there's a reign of four things. And each one of those four things is related to one of the, the ones. And once I figure that out, then I know which, one, which reign I'm under, which reign I'm participating in. But there's a promise of a much more. And that much more is only connected, it seems, to one of the individuals who's going to give me much more than the other individual, which still comes back to the one and the two. And it comes back to the reign. Yes? But I'm also going to be confronted with the fact that the text is also going to present ideas where it seems like, well, that makes no sense because it's going to give you an answer without emphatically saying, here's the, does he emphatically say there's the answer? No, he doesn't emphatically say. But what are you going to catch on through the passage? Oh, I'm identified with the one. If I'm identified with the one, I'm guilty whether I ever commit a sin or not. I want to make sure you realize, you are guilty whether you ever commit one sin. Like, a lot of Christians don't realize that. Well, I'm good to go because I did good. You're guilty in Adam! So, you're like, well, I did enough works to be saved. It doesn't matter! You're in Adam! You're guilty! You're done! You're finished! You've lost the race before the race even started. You lost the fight before the fight even started. You've lost. You're finished. You're done. Your only hope is to be connected with the other one. There you go. In fact, this is going to emphasize what he said before. He gave Abraham and Sarah all kinds of promises, and what did he do? He waited till they were without, till they were basically physically dead to produce said promises. Then he comes along, here's all the promises of salvation, and guess what? You've got to realize that you are without strength to get the promises, not through your efforts. That's why it was illustrated that way. Okay, we'll stop there. Now, so now we're just going to skip the rest of it. Because you, now you understand it. We didn't even have to study it. There you go. See? See? Now, now we can just read it and be done, right? All right. We'll see. All right. Let's uh, pray. Lord God, we come before you this morning. 
Lord, this is a powerful passage of Scripture that I hope we don't just leave here this morning going, thinking that we're, we're smarter than everyone else. I hope we spend some time really considering which one we identify with, Lord, and that we rejoice that we identify with your Son and that he did bring much more, more life, more grace, more forgiveness, more righteousness. And without him, we would be under the reign of Adam. And I pray that we would rejoice in that today, meditate on this passage this week, and really grow in our understanding and appreciation for what you provided to us through your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. And God's people said,